Welcome to Hiraith, a home for the left in Wales. Tonight we're joined by Carwin Jones. First elected to the National Assembly for Wales in 1999, he became First Minister in 2009, serving until 2018 when he returned to the backbenches. Since then, he's been appointed Professor of Law at the University of Aberystwyth and has released his new book, Not Just Politics. Thank you for coming on, Carwin. Hi, you're very welcome. Good to be on, Matt. Before we get into the, the, the meat of, of everything in the book, what inspired you to, to write it? Well, I was asked to. I mean, to be honest, I hadn't thought of writing a book. Uh, I thought, well, you know, who's going to want to publish it for a start? But uh, I was asked to do it. I was approached by a publisher in London and um, got on and did it. I mean, we, I, I got somebody in a ghostwriter. I thought, well, it's a bit, you know, I've not written something longer than 12,000 words before, so I need somebody who knows what they're doing. Uh, and that worked very well. Uh, it was meant to have been launched at the end of last year, of course, and uh, it wasn't. It didn't happen that way. Uh, then hay, then it didn't. Of course, hay went out of the window as a physical event. So yeah, there we are. Finally, at the beginning of September, we got it. Uh, we got it out. So, what first got you involved in politics? What was the spark? Well, really, it was the minor strike. You know, I was in the sixth form in school, the lower sixth. Actually, I was seventeen when the minor strike started. Now, I went to school in Bridgend, not a mining town, but just a few miles up the road. You still had three working pits um, in each of the three valleys. And my mother and father were from a village that was a mining village. It still had a colliery down the road. And I saw the effect of the miners' strike on those communities and the fact that they were basically vilified for nothing more than trying to ensure a, a life for their communities. And, of course, when the miners' strike finished, um, they were abandoned, basically. You know, the, the, the collieries went... Uh, and no proper employment was put in place to uh, to make up for the jobs that have been lost in coal. So it was the minor strike that was the spark for me. Obviously, you come from a, a Welsh-speaking family. You went to very Welsh-speaking radical halls in, in Aberystwyth. You know, on paper, you seem like the sort of person that was going to get headhunted by Plaid Cymru, but you joined Labour. What made yeah, you choose Labour over Plaid? I've been asked that. You know, my grandfather was a Plaid election agent. He in Carmarthen, uh, but he was the only one in the family who was polite. Most of the men in my family were colliers, they were Labour. And it, speaking Welsh or not didn't make a difference. And yeah, you know, when I was a teenager and I was forming my political views, one of the things you then do is look for a party that best represents your views and polite just with that party. It wasn't just a question of independence, it was the, the fact that the, Gwynvor Evans's vision of Wales didn't shine with me at all. It was seemed to be a pacifist, temperant, chapel-going Wales, which had no resonance for me at all. It just seemed like something from the past. So Plaid never had any attractions for me. And, and in Bregend, the Plaid people in Bregend at that time were an unusual bunch of people. I always think that the, um, the, the fewer votes you get in any particular constituency, the more unrepresentative your party membership is of the people who live in that constituency. It was certainly true of Plaid in the 80s of Bregend. So really, it was, it, it was never an attraction for me because I, I never shared that kind of vision for Wales. You talk about the Labour Party that you joined, uh, seeing a very clear line between the concepts of socialism and nationalism. Do you think that's still the case today? The Labour Party is very different. It's much more broad-based than it was in the 80s. Look, it, it wasn't a particularly welcoming place for Welsh speakers in the mid-80s. There were still a lot of people in, in Labour who thought, you know, the Welsh language was a threat and it was something that belonged entirely to Plaid. It was still quite anti-devolution still very suspicious of any kind of Welsh identity, beyond a singing song in Welsh night in conference. It's changed a hell of a lot since then, and for the better. And it needed to, because Wales has changed. And we kept our appeal by becoming a devolutionist party. You know, not a party that, a party that's, you know, is comfortable with its identity and its Welshness, but doesn't see that as leading to political independence uh, or an exclusive sort of Welshness. 
And I think we've changed in that time. But the party in the 80s was quite different. It wasn't wasn't 100 percent a 100% comfortable place to be if you're a Welsh speaker actually at that point. Since then, you say that's changed, and you know, since clear ed water and stuff, and embracing a much more Welsh identity. Yeah, that's than, yes, indeed. Uh, you've seen Welsh Labour embrace a much more Welsh identity, civic, not civic nationalism, but a much more civic Welshness. Do you think that's one of the reasons that Welsh Labour has done better than Scottish Labour at sort of? Uh, doing well in elections against nationalist parties. Without any shadow of a doubt. I mean, we let's think of where the two parties were in Scotland and Wales back in 99. Scottish Labour had an established identity, an established structure. It was comfortable in its Scottishness. It called itself Scottish Labour. We didn't call ourselves Welsh Labour in Wales. There was a suspicion even about that at that time. I remember having a discussion with a senior Labour politician who shall remain nameless, uh, who said, I mean, we can't call ourselves Welsh Labour. People will think we're only for Welsh speakers. They said, well, how can that be? The Welsh rugby team isn't made up of Welsh speakers or the Welsh football team. But this person was convinced of it. That person's changed their mind since, I've got to say. And we are now comfortable with being Welsh Labour, a Welsh political party. And as soon as parties forget that, then they cede the ground to play Cymru. And, and in 2007, we had a particularly nasty conference in the CIA in Cardiff. Uh, it was over the taking a decision over the coalition with Plaid. And it was, it was a bitter conference, very bad. Lots of people who were now you know, great friends who were at each other's throats at that time. The atmosphere was awful. But once we got through that, we then became comfortable with Welsh Labour. And Rodri's plan, and something that I certainly followed, was what we need to do is to appeal to those people we call the red-shirted patriots, the people who wore the rugby shirts in the uh, Millennium Stadium, who supported Wales, very much, very devolutionist, although they wouldn't call themselves that, but not in favour of independence. So in Scotland, Scottish Labour went the other way and started conceding the ground of Scottish identity to the SNP. And those people who were not pro-independence were led in that direction. Well, in Wales, we, we garnered that, we occupied that ground and left Plaid with the stony ground, as it was then, of, of independence. And that was quite deliberate on our part. And so Welsh Labour is there to reflect people's sense of identity. I've lost count of the number of people who said to me, you know, I'm, I'm very, pro- very proudly Welsh, that's why I vote Labour. Now, we never wanted to get to a position as a party where people see an expression of their identity as needing to vote for for Plaid Cymru. You talk a bit about the development of nation, especially concerning devolution in the book. So obviously you were elected in 99, but I want to talk a little bit about that first, well, not that first referendum, the second referendum, but the 97 referendum, and what the campaign was like to be part of, and how different you think Wales would be now if we hadn't voted for devolution in 97. I don't think Wales would exist if we hadn't voted for devolution. I mean, why would we have a right to exist? You know, Northern Ireland have an assembly, Scotland have a parliament, uh, and we'd have nothing. Uh, you know, we'd have been, uh, no, we'd have a normal right to cause as a nation than Yorkshire or Cornwall, for that matter. And there are people in Cornwall who would describe themselves, of course, as being part of a nation. But the reality is, and we'd be ignored. You know, there was there was a casual racism in Whitehall that I encountered in the early years of how incredible that you Welsh feel you can govern yourselves. Like literally, and this great experiment of devolution, tap on the head. I think we'd have been regarded as a laughing stock uh, and widely ignored. It didn't happen that way, although it was close. A lot of people, including our own voters in '99, said, "I mean, well, we've got to leave a government now. That's what we wanted. We don't we don't need this anymore, do we?" Uh, and that was a difficult one to overcome. But what really swung it, if I'm honest, is John Redwood. You mentioned John Redwood's name and he'd win people over because he was so unpopular. And people were really angry at the fact that they'd had a sector state imposed from outside Wales. And he wasn't the first, in fair. 
but it's so obviously not like the job. And so obviously been pretty indifferent, to say the least, to Wales. And if we hadn't had John Redwood as Secretary of State, I'm not sure we'd have won that referendum. We should build him a statue in the Bay. Oh, I can imagine what would happen to a John Redwood statue down Cardiff Bay. Uh, <laughs> so obviously you're from Bridgend and you've represented Bridgend since 99, well, slightly before that on the council as well. How has Bridgend changed and how has it felt like representing your hometown? Oh, fantastic honour. To represent my hometown in, in Wales' first parliament, first democratic parliament, was a fantastic honour. You know, times have changed. Bridgend's town centre is going through tough times, as are so many town centres across Wales. We've lost the Ford plant in the last uh, week, basically. And uh, that would never have been foreseen at the time. Uh, we still had Sony and Bridgen at that point. They're still outside of the town. So it has changed a lot in that uh, in that time. The economy is still pretty buoyant in the circumstances uh, because it's always been quite broad, broadly based. I mean, but the major change that I've seen in the past 20 years is the growth of social media. In 99, there wasn't any social media. If you wanted to uh, make your view known, you, you sent a press release by fax to uh, either the press or, or to TV. And that's been the enormous change. And in some ways it's been great because you can get your message across far more effectively with a load of filter, but also it means that you know, for some people they are constantly on Twitter. And uh, now I haven't been on Twitter for two days and deliberately so because I don't want to spend my life on Twitter. And I'm constantly having Twitter spats with it with you know people are, I'm not interested in doing that. So it's a, it's a double-edged sword. But yeah, I mean, if, if someone had said to talk to me about Twitter or Facebook or, or even the iPhone in 1999, I wouldn't have known obviously what, what on earth they were talking about. And that's been the biggest change. That uh, in some ways is useful, but in other ways has been a nuisance. Have you seen the devolution itself, or the the existence of the Senna that's had a big effect on Bridgend? Do you think it's brought things to Bridgend that without devolution wouldn't be there? Well, I think Ford stayed for much longer than they would have done if it wasn't for devolution. Uh, we have companies like CGI in Bridgend, uh, who I met as first minister. They, they employ 1,200 people in the uh, in the town now. Uh, we have Aston Martin, not very far away from Bridgend, not in Bridgend itself, but not too far away. Again, entirely down to Welsh government, and that would never have come, frankly, in pre-devolution days. And the town's also benefited from the big events that have been held in Cardiff. In the hospitality industry, the town's benefited. The fact we had the Rugby Union World Cup, Rugby League World Cup, we had the, the Ryder Cup in 2010, not so far away. We had the Champions League final. None of these things would have come to Wales if it wasn't for the fact that there was a government in Cardiff fighting to bring these events to Wales. It just would never have come. So your, your first senior role, we're going to talk about your first senior role in, uh, in Welsh politics and uh, crises. So obviously you were appointed as Agricultural Minister and not long after I had to contend with the, the foot and mouth crisis. Do you yeah. want to talk a little bit about that crisis and how do you think it helped yeah. prepare you for you know, the, your future in Welsh politics? Oh, it was a seat of the pants job. I tell you, just to take you back a little bit, I was appointed uh, as a minister for the first time and I was announced at the Royal Welsh Show. So I became agriculture minister on the morning of the most important day in agriculture. I had a day and a half's warning. Rodri rang me up at half past ten the previous Saturday night to tell me this. And he rang up and uh, the phone rang. I didn't have you know, a caller ID in those days. I thought, oh, I'm going to answer it. Or I'll just leave the answer phone and take it out. I'll better answer it. And there was Rodri. He said, Carry, he said, I want you to take over as Agriculture Secretary on Monday. And we'll go to the Royal Welsh together. He's all right. Uh, yeah, thank you, Rodri. And that was it. That was that was it. There wasn't, you know, the First Minister, the First Minister's office has got in touch and asked you to do none of that at all. So then I was sorry in the deep end. But then, of course, in February of the following year, I remember I was in Larne in Northern Ireland, just outside Larne, 
So my wife's from Northern Ireland visiting her family, and that's when I had the news that the disease had appeared in Wales. I think it was in Galway, in the, in the abattoir, Galway and Anglesey. And then, of course, all hell broke loose uh, for a good few months. And the irony was that we didn't have any powers of foot and mouth disease. They weren't devolved. Animal health was, but not foot and mouth disease. So there was a strange split responsibility between ourselves and DEFRA because we had the staff and they didn't. So they had to use our staff. There had to be an agreement over that. Well, fine, no problem. Uh, but of course, things such as using landfill sites for, to dispose carcasses, that had to be licensed by us. I know, by, and so the whole thing was, it was a mess. But we got through it. Uh, you know, there were some very tough times, especially when we had to uh, burn carcasses on the Epid Mountain in Powys. That was, you know, there was widespread local opposition to that. Uh, and it disappeared by about May or June, if I remember, in, in 2001, and reappeared as it, out of nowhere in the August of that year on top of Penavan. Without any link to anywhere else, is literally out of nowhere. And to this day, how it got there is a, is a, is a mystery. And uh, then, of course, we had to start the, start the fight all over again. Oh, so you talk about there being, uh, you know, some, some difficulties working, well, not, you know, difficulties working with the UK government about what is devolved and what's not devolved. You know, a lot of people talk about the devolution settlement being a bit of a hodgepodge. Do you think that's indicative of some of the broader problems we've got with our constitution? Oh, yeah. I mean, look, when we started in 99, you were basically a body that shuffled money around, pretty much. We had some legislative powers, but they were, they were very minor. We had to fund the health service, but have no, have no control of the structure of it. We couldn't change the structure at all. So it was a bizarre scenario. And we had bits of things. You know, nothing was ever properly devolved. And the reason for that was that basically we took over the powers of the Welsh office. And the Welsh office very rarely did anything different to a, to a government department in Whitehall, sometimes, but not often. And then, of course, we just ended up in a situation where we were in court on a regular basis for the courts to establish where the line lay in terms of devolution. Now, it's clearer now. The reserve powers model that's come in, that's, that's, a, that's clearer. So we went from a situation where, unless something was specifically devolved, then it was assumed to be reserved to the Westminster Parliament. That was the opposite. Unless something specifically reserved to the Westminster Parliament, then it's assumed to be devolved. And that's taken a lot of the difficulty out in terms of having to be in front of the Supreme Court all the time. But the Internal Markets Bill will bring it all back again because it's so badly drafted that we'll be in court every other week at this rate because of one particular clause in the bill that talks of the internal market bill not applying to current legislation, but if current legislation is the subject of substantive change, then it does apply. So we're going to end up in court debating substantive change on a monthly basis and arguing about whether particular an act in Northern Ireland applies across the whole of the UK, which is effectively what the internal market bill actually says. So it was a mess, no question about that. It's, it's tidier than it was, but it'll never be right until we get a proper constitutional settlement across the whole of the UK. Instead of seeing devolution as something that's thrown at Northern Ireland and thrown at Scotland and thrown at Wales, it has to be seen in the context of the UK and the need for, to my mind, a confederal UK where you have four nations with it with equivalent powers, basically, and some of those powers are pooled because it makes sense to do it, such as defence, border, immigration, fiscal and monetary union. You, know, you don't want them devolved, but otherwise... Until that's done, the UK will never be stable. That's the problem. And while it's, while it, and while it's not stable, it is in danger of falling apart. So, you've talked about this again a little bit with the IWA, and obviously you've, you've mentioned this a number of times in the last year or so. How do you think we go from this place, where I think a lot of people do recognise there's problems with the current constitutional settlement? How do we deliver that? How do we see that change? What to you are the, 
the ways about we 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 enact that change well we need a constitutional convention i said i first suggested this in 2013 now i don't think the tories are going to do this at all they're wedded to you know old style westminsterism if i can call it that but the labor party has a great opportunity here because we can offer a constitutional settlement that i think will keep scotland in the union particularly it's gone from being the you know the, the domain of anoraks to something that's fundamental to the Labour Party's ability to form a government, because our party's path to power without Scotland is an exceptionally narrow one. You know, 1997, it wouldn't have mattered. It does now. Uh, it's difficult to see how we can form a government without, without getting a, a substantial number of seats in Scotland. And the way to do that is, first of all, to say to people in Scotland, look, independence, you don't need independence, but how about home rule, if I can put it that way, where each of the four nations is sovereign, but each of the four nations pools that sovereignty, as Canada does, actually. There's nothing radical about this. And that will create a proper partnership of equals. Now, if we don't make that offer as a party, we're not going to govern again because we're not going to be able to get uh, seats in Scotland. And we, you know, My worry about Wales is Wales is where Scotland was 20 years ago, where you've got a third of the population in favour of independence and 40% of Labour voters who'd vote for independence. That's very, very eerily uh, where Scotland was in 99. And where Scotland, you know, where Scotland goes, Wales might well follow. So there's the opportunity for us as a party to bring forward a proper, lasting, sustainable constitutional settlement that will ensure that the best bits of the UK are kept together, but also provides us with a potential path to government. If we don't do that, then it's very, very tough to see how we win a majority at Westminster. We're going to go a little bit back to back in time from where we are now and talk a bit about your relationship with, with Roger Morgan. You obviously had a great affinity, and I think that shines through in the book. Um, obviously, he gave you your first job yeah. in government. What lessons did you learn from Rodri? Well, Rodri was my father in politics. You know, Rodri was a year younger than my own father, so same generation. And it was his easy way with people. And Rodri, Rodri's great knack was in some ways to hide the fact that he was actually ultra-intelligent. You know, Oxford and Harvard. You know, Rodri was a, a hyper-clever man. He was one of these people who, if, if he met you, and then met you 10 years later, he'd remember your name. How the hell he did this? I have no idea, but I saw him do it. He just never forgot people's names. And yet, he was never the distant intellectual. He was somebody who was seen as a man of the people. He could talk about it. He loved his rugby, loved his sport. And he had a hinterland beyond politics. The best politicians are those who have interests outside politics. There are too many people in politics who, who just have no interest at all in anything apart from politics, and that doesn't make them, make some good gossips, but it doesn't make them good representatives of the people they're elected to represent. And that's what Rodri taught me. You, you, politics is your passion, as well as your profession. But for Rodri, family was all important, as it is for me. Sport was all important, as it is for me. And you draw on those outside interests to make you a, a, a more rounded person and therefore a better representative. So what's your hinterland then? The, not the ones you've mentioned, so not sport or, or family. Has you got anything else that people don't know about you having a passion for? Well, sport mad. I mean, sport, I mad. sport mad. There's no, there's no point pretending otherwise. You know, I, 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 my way of relaxing is watching sport. That's it. I read a lot. So I do a lot of that. Um, family as well for me. You know, the fact my, my family were always, you know, I have a tiny family, very small, but they were always there for me when I needed them. If I'd ever been put in a position where my choice was my family or, or being first minister, I'd put my family first every single time, every single time. 
and you know, you're never in that position. But I think that's a healthy place to be. Oh, see, so Rodri gave you your first big job in government and you gave Mark Drakeford his first big job in government when you appointed him to the cabinet in... It was uh, 2015. As obviously him following after you, has he ever come to you for any advice or did you take the time to talk to him when you handed it over? Always did, and Mark and I are still in contact. Uh, Mark will discuss things with me from time to time, but when he wants to. The worst thing possible is to have a, a predecessor who constantly gets in touch with you to offer advice that actually hasn't been uh, solicited and isn't welcome. Uh, and that's the way it's been with Mark. You know, Mark is the only person I ever appointed who went straight from the backbenches to the cabinet. You know, my view was always people have to be a deputy minister first, but Mark's experience was such, and he'd been the chief special advisor of a Rodri, that he was eminently qualified to come straight into the cabinet. One of the things I found about Mark was when he spoke, people listened. And that's still the case. You know, Mark is somebody who, again, very, very clever man. Great sense of humour, Mark. You know, he's, he's got great wit. Uh, so he's, he's hardly, you know, he's not he's dry, as, dry as ditch. Or none, none of that at all. And that was, that's what makes him effective as a leader, to my mind. And I think certainly in the past few months uh, with COVID, he's coming to his own. I'm sure he'd obviously chosen a different path to do that but there's no doubt that people people have wanted to, to hear from somebody who will reassure them and who is in full command of the facts and that's just what they get with mark he is he's a very very good leader to have at a time like this you are you can see that in all his poll ratings everyone seems to know much more who mark draper is than they did previously yeah. we've talked a little bit about Welsh Labour leaders. Let's talk a little bit about UK Labour leaders. You mentioned in the book you've had a good relationship with, with Jeremy Corbyn and even at Miliband. You do mention, though, that the ability of UK Labour leaders to sometimes rub the Welsh Labour Party up the wrong way. What's your relationship with Keir Starmer? And do you think he has the potential to ever rub the Welsh Labour Party up the wrong way? Well, my relationship with Keir is very good. And no is the answer. I don't think he has. Keir gets constitutional change much more than his predecessors, I have to say. And he understands the, 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 the difficulties we face as a country. Now, there was no Labour leader I didn't get on with. You know, we, I mean, Gordon was only there for a few months, so I barely got to know Gordon at that time. Uh, Ed Miliband, all right, but the problem I found with, with Ed in the front bench is that whenever we were being hammered, as we were on health, week after week after week after week, by the Tory papers and by David Cameron, even though we would give them the responses they needed, they just never used them. So we'd sit there tearing our hair out as we were being kicked round the chamber in Westminster and our colleagues weren't defending us. That's the way we felt. And Jeremy, even though our politics are very different, actually he was quite easy to get on with. <laughs> and I got on with him pretty well. Uh, and I'll never forget, you know, Inchland did know when I'd made my announcement that I was going, he made a speech and walked up to me in the middle of his speech and shook my hand. And I thought that was a, you know, that was a, quite a gesture. And I appreciated that. Uh, so there was no difficulty there in terms of, of any kind of conflict. I, I had known Kia for years. You know, I'd, I'd met Kia and had spoken to Kia over the years before he became leader. So I can't say there was anybody who, any leader, where I thought, God, you know, I just can't get on with this person. It was never that bad. You talk a little bit about in the book as well about there being broader tensions, tensions between the Labour Party in Westminster and the Labour Party in the Senate. Why do you think that exists? And do you think it's just a permanent feature of the nature of devolution that there being decisions made at one end of the M4 that are different at the other end? Oh, it's very different now to what it was. There, there, there was a fair bit of tension at one time. We go back 15 years, say, that it was quite, you know, 
the glacier wasn't always plain sailing, let's put it that way. And there could be some arguments behind the scenes. We're a long way from that now. You know, people know people know each other far better. Uh, a lot of the older guard who were anti-devolution, you know, they, they'd gone many years ago. And, um, uh, you know, the, the relationship now, I think, is, is as good as it's ever been. You know, inevitably, there'll be tensions from time to time in institutions. That's, that's, you know, that's normal. It's how they're dealt with that, that's important. But we don't have a situation now where we've got, you know, real feminist uh, situation between our MPs and our MSs. Far from it. You know, people see themselves as part of, a, of one team. So moving a little bit, looking at the Senate election, it's the first one you won't be standing in. There's a talk of there being a potential for coalitions. Obviously, you've been in a, a couple of coalitions in your time as a member of the Senate and as First Minister. What lessons did you learn from those coalitions? And is there anything you think is worthwhile for potential party leaders and party representatives going into any potential uh, coalition discussions? Well, Yes, I've worked in two coalitions and I've never worked in a government with a majority, and yet we managed to deliver. Uh, first of all, you have to see, you know, at the, no, nobody will campaign for a coalition, you can't vote for a coalition, so each party has to campaign on its own policies and wait for the outcome as far as the electors are concerned. You know, if we go back to 2007, the Tories, Plaid and Lib Dems are on the verge of a coalition. The Tories have just distanced themselves miles away from any other party now, so the, the Conservatives are never going to win, never going to be in government in Wales, so they can't form a coalition with anyone. Uh, which politically so is a very odd place to be, but you know, that's a matter for them. Plaid have said they won't go to a coalition with anybody. Well, the reality is that it is always likely in any election that no party will win a majority. So if you're going to have stable government, there has to be some kind of arrangement. Now, nobody, you can't say to people before, you know, if, people, if people get asked the question as leaders, who do you go to coalition with? You can't, you can't say that. You, you say, well, we're, here to win, you know, we're here to win a majority. That's what we're here. To, that's our aim. You know, if you concede at the at the outset that that's unattainable, well, you sort of demoralise your own people. So you can't do that. But as to what happens after May, we simply have to wait and see. Uh, as I say, we, we've never been in a position where we've had thirty-one Labour Labour AMs in the past, and so we've always had to find a way to work with others in order to in order to get the budget through. Particularly, the budget is a tricky one every year, and to get legislation through. That's the reality of our politics, which makes it so very different to Westminster, where coalitions are seen as an, a, a, basically entirely abnormal, whereas in Wales they're quite often, not always, but quite often unavoidable. We couldn't form a coalition in 2016. Uh, applied were interested anyway. Uh, we're not going to work with the Tories. Uh, and so it was a question of oh, Brexit or UKIP, obviously. So it was a question of bringing Kirsty on board early on. I thought that was important for two reasons. Firstly, Obviously, politically, gave us 30 members, but she was a very good minister, and I thought she deserved to be a minister. Uh, and so that's why I brought I brought Kirsty in. Uh, and then, of course, David L, uh, he uh, changed uh, tack. He'd be sat as an independent. I'd, I'd been speaking to him, actually, for a few months before the reshuffle that brought him in about him joining government. But you know, we the agreement between us was that he would join when there was a reshuffle and not just, just out of the blue. And that gave us 31, and that's the majority. So that's the way politics has to be. You know, if you don't have a majority, you have to find a way to craft a majority. That could be through a coalition or through any other arrangement, or it could be through a, an ad hoc, you know, confidence and supply arrangement. But having nothing, when you don't have a majority, I've been there, right? It, it's awful to try and govern when you, when you cannot get legislation through. I think everyone remembers the day 
of that first first minister vote in 2016. Obviously, I, I was there in the gallery and it seemed like uh, Welsh politics was spinning on its head that day. How much did you know of what was going to happen and, and what happened after that that led to the eventual oh, second vote? I heard that morning, so we, we, we'd been tipped off. Now, Plaid had told us over the weekend that they weren't going to put Leanne forward because we'd actually contacted them you know, quite and said, look, you know, what's, what are you going to do? Uh, so we've got an idea, and they said, oh, no, we're not, you know, we're not going to put anyone forward, and then they changed their minds. Now, fortunately, I'd already spoken to Kirsty, so I knew that I could rely on Kirsty's one, and I hoped I could rely on Kirsty's vote. Then I know Leanne contacted her, but she was too late at that point. So speaking to Kirsty earlier was really important. And then, of course, I mean, how it would have worked, you know, maybe Leanne could have been elected first minister, but with UKIP support, you know, with 12 members in the chamber, that's a, a big ask, I think. I mean, I, I wouldn't have fancied doing that myself, if I'm honest. And then, of course, it was quite clear there was going to be a stalemate. Um, the only way that stalemate could be broken uh, would be for one or other of us to, 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 to give way. And it was Leanne, you know, who did that. I think, you know, it was the right decision. I'm not crowing about it. That's not what I'm trying to say here. But I think in the circumstances and the arithmetic, that was really all that could be done without another election being called, which nobody really wanted. What's your proudest achievement from your time as First Minister? Well, if you know that there are people who are walking the streets who are alive, who would not have been alive if it wasn't for legislation that you passed, I don't think you'd ask for more than that. So it's the Human Transplantation Act. The fact that there are people alive as a result of that legislation that, that otherwise wouldn't have had um, the chance of life. Now that built, of course, on there's also the Wellbeing Future Generations Act, which I think is a, is a hugely important piece of legislation. But for me, that just to, just beyond that is the Human Transplantation Act. But of course, we would never have been able to do that without winning the referendum in 2011. You now that wouldn't have happened. So for me, that's got you know in a crowded field of more than 30 acts of the Assembly. That's the one that I'm most proud of that we got through this current assembly and and, and you know implemented. Now bear in mind that we know we all know the problems of, of getting a message across in Wales because of the weakness of our indigenous print media, particularly. But it was well planned. Uh, there was a good publicity campaign. People were aware of it. Uh, it wasn't introduced you know, in, in, with people not knowing what was going on. And I think that was a that that was really a case study in how to do legislation, pass it, make sure people are aware of it, and then implement it. Do you think you have any unfinished business? Do you think there was anything you wanted to pass or yeah. didn't look, quite manage? government reform. <laughs> now, we're very fortunate. We've got some very good local government leaders. Yeah, we, we, you know, probably the strongest crop we've had, actually. But 22 authorities doesn't work in Wales. You know, at one point, we had six local education authorities and special measures. There's always one crisis or other in one authority. And my view is always we need fewer authorities. The number, you can argue about some say 10, some say 12, some say 14. But I wanted properly empowered local authorities and give powers to, to bigger local authorities. But I just couldn't see myself doing that when I saw local authorities that just didn't have the critical mass to do things they want. So many local authorities have you know, a department planning, social services, for example, uh, education. They, they function perfectly well as long as they don't have one or two people on, on sick. <laughs> then they start to struggle because they don't have a, the critical mass that Midlam had, for example. So for me, you know, we will have to revisit this at some point. Nobody disagrees that there has to be some kind of local government reform, but no one can agree what it should look like. So for me, that's the one area. I'd like to have put local authorities on a, a sounder footing with more powers 
but unfortunately we weren't able because of the arithmetic to do that. Do you think that's the primary reason why it didn't happen? Do you think it's just a, que- a question of no one can agree on what the final map should look like? Or do you think yeah. it's a bit deeper than that? Oh, yeah. yeah. Because we couldn't, you know, bear in mind that, that each party will make its own calculation as to what model is best for it. And unless, you can, unless you've got a, a clear majority, and I mean more than one, a clear majority on the floor of the, of the Senev, you'll be able to get it through. So it's always been about not, not the need for, for, reform, for, for reorganisation, but how it's done. And this is where we are at the moment, for example, with the, uh, the numbers in the Senate and, and the method of election. Uh, everyone knows the cuts, that what, what we've got now isn't really sustainable in the long term, but no one can agree on how to do it. What would your preference be for that? Do you want more members or yeah, look, the electoral system? The answer, there, there aren't enough members. But I know full well that going to the electorate and saying we need more politicians is not a way of winning people over. So what I say to people is, look, the Senate is half the, is not far half the size of the Northern Ireland Assembly. The Northern Ireland's population is half the size of Wales. It's smaller than many local authorities. And actually, all it does is it gives more power to government at the expense of the legislature because... As a backbencher now, backbenchers are running round all over the place. I mean, I'm on two committees a week. I mean, nothing in Westminster. That would never happen. You know, that would be seen as some kind of punishment. You know, upset somebody to be on two committees, let alone two a week. So the workload is phenomenal compared to, uh, compared, I think, compared to Westminster, for example, or any other parliament, because we're so small. And I think if we had more people, we could produce better legislation. You know, we, we can have legislators properly, that's not, not scrutinised, scrutinised with bigger committees for a start, uh, but allows some members to become specialists. Because in, in Westminster, the great advantage of the numbers in Westminster is that some backbenchers become specialists in a particular area. You can't do you can't that in the Senate. It's impossible. You've got time uh, to do that. So I think it would give us the Senate a greater depth if we did have more members, but it's a very tough one to, uh, to sell the electorate. And then, of course, if you do go to 80, how do you elect them? And that's hugely difficult to resolve because naturally the party that does best under the current system, i.e. us, uh, will want to keep the, pretty much the current system, whereas other parties will say, no, we want something more proportionate. And there, and there is the difficulty. Have you enjoyed your time being a backbencher again? You've given us some of the best sound bites of the <laughs> last few years, things like constitutional graffiti. But have yeah. you enjoyed your time being back on the committees? I have. Uh, it's, time to, it's time to move on now, I've got to say. Uh, it, was, it, was, it was good. It's nice to do something different. But you know, I knew that once I stood down, I, I wasn't going to stand again. I told my GC that back in um, May of 20, uh, 2018, because I think you need to, to leave the stage. Uh, two reasons. First of all, if you don't, I think people take the view that you somehow don't trust your successor, that you have to stay there. Ted Heath did for years, glaring at Margaret Thatcher. And secondly, uh, someone else deserves a shot. You know, I never saw politics as a career, something I wanted to do in my 60s and 70s. And I've represented, I'll have represented Bridgend for 22 years in May. That's long enough. That's long enough. It's time for somebody else now to have a go. Well, we know your uh, predecessor candidate in Bridgend, Sarah Murphy, often listens, so we'll give her a quick shout out now. Um, what are your plans after you stand down? Do you ever envisage becoming a legislator in some form again? Or do you think... Well, We've had enough of parliaments now. I can't see me standing for election again, right? I just can't see it. It's, I think you have to let go. As people have said to me, are you going to stand in the, gen- in the general election? I, I'd be 57, 58 at that point. And am I going to do another three, two or three turns? No, I'm not going to do it, Mike. So I, I can't see that happening, if I'm honest. 
uh, that's not what I'm planning. And my wife would kill me, given the fact that I promised that I, I wouldn't do it again. So there are other things that, I, that I've already started doing. There's some broadcasting work, so I'm, fi I'm filming various things for, um, for S4C at the moment. Uh, there's some writing, uh, some business advice. I do a podcast for a media organization. So it's a mixture of things at the moment, if I'm honest. And who knows what will happen after, uh, after me. I'm, I'm, I'm as busy now as I was before, uh, having, you know, doing various things. So I'm, I'm, I'm doing as much now as I can, really, and being you know, effective as a, as, a, as a member of the Senate without uh, promising the earth and not, not being able to, do, uh, to deliver. And then after me, who knows? Obviously, you've got the uh, NEC campaign going on at the moment yep. to be on the Labour NEC. Could you ever say, ever uh, see yourself accepting the call to go to the House of Lords or something? Or are you, do you, do you would you well, not who want knows? to do that? Not at the moment. Not at the moment, because I, I'm going to do it properly. Uh, so who knows at some point in the future? You know, at the moment, I'm so busy, especially as a, as a Senate member. I just couldn't do it at, at, at this moment in time. So... And it's not something I've really thought of, to be honest with you. Uh, if I was asked, you know, it's something that would interest me. Of course, it would be, but it's not. There's so many other things at the moment I'm doing that, um, you know, in all fairness, I I find it difficult to do it justice at the moment. But who knows uh, what 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 happens in the future? I mean, I'm 50, I'll be 54 in March, so I'm a long way off being able to take a pension. I can't do nothing. I want to make a living. Uh, the NEC is something that. Obviously, I'd like to do, so I'm standing as a candidate, and people have said to me, why are you doing that? Surely you've done enough already. Why, why are you putting yourself through that? And the simple reason is this. We've got unfinished business. When, as there's a Tory government in London, that for me is unfinished business. I want to see a Labour government elected across the whole of the UK. And for me, that means unity. That means an end to the, 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 the factionalism that's destroyed us as a party for years and stopped us being elected, frankly. We never learned, do we? Uh, and I would be fully behind Keir to be to be Prime Minister, because that's what I want to see. Because parties that argue amongst themselves, they don't get elected. And we are not a debating society. If we cannot win elections, we're nothing. We may as well not exist. We exist to win elections on behalf of working people in this country. And that's exactly what I want to take care. Carwin Jones, thank you very much. Your book, Carwin Jones, Not Just Politics, is available now in all good retailers thank you so much for coming on it has been a pleasure to talk to you very welcome indeed thanks very much man if you like what you've heard tonight please don't forget to find us on medium at here i spoke cymru on facebook at here i spoke cymru and on twitter at here i blog thank you for listening to here i if you like what you heard please don't forget to subscribe rate and review